1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
0: This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to the singer from Mojo Gurus and Rocks Gang, Kevin Steele. Kevin is a funny guy, and he's got some cool stories. Check it, no easy way out. So Kevin, welcome to the 80s Glam Cast. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, no problem. So a lot of the glam metal heads out there, they know you from uh the singer of Rox Gang. So they might not realize you've been very active with the band of Mojo Gurus. Why don't you tell everybody about uh Mojo Gurus?
1: Mojo Gurus kinda evolved out of uh you know, Rox Gang was like a big big voodoo <laughs> glam slam band and uh you know in the in the early 90s and all the big rock clubs started closing and uh grunge was taking over and and uh rock stank style of music was kind of you know to be honest falling out of fashion you know for sure um and i had always been influenced by guys like uh as a front man, I always like flamboyant front men like Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler. And, um, you know, the music I grew up on was like blues based rock and roll. And then when I got a little older, you know, I started getting into like bands like, uh, T-Rex, the Hoopo and the New York Dolls. And that's when I fell in love with the glam thing. And then, uh, but I always had these blues, blues rock roots. And um, there's a big, from the first Rocks Gang album, at that point, I was just like, really, I was just writing lyrics and, and handing them over to my guitar players, you know? But then I got a little more musical savvy myself, and I started coming up with uh musical ideas, I started steering the band. There's a huge difference from the first Rocks Gang album, I think, to the second Rocks Gang album as far as headed in a more blues rock direction. So anyways, Rocks Gang is starting to become a... Uh, I mean, quite frankly, it was like a lot of baggage with that name at a certain point in time. And um, one night we were playing a party for a... Um, it was my old lady at the time we 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 took over a club in downtown saint petersburg called the voodoo lounge and um you know we didn't want to go in with a big full-on rock gang production so like we played under an alias we called ourselves the mojo gurus and we played a bunch of um uh, you know old rock and rockabilly some uh some old school kind of like outlaw country. And um, we had a blast, man. And um, the next Rock Gang album, we called Mojo Gurus. And it was dedicated to all our Mojo Gurus, all our, our idols. And um, the name Mojo Gurus came from, you know, Mojo is from the blues vernacular. You're Mojo, you're, it's like you're you know if you got your mojo working you got your you got your groove on you got your swagger and um a guru is a spiritual leader so you put them together and that's where that name came from and uh finally it got to be where all the big clubs were closing and you know we had the big rocks gang production where you come pulling up with a truck and lines of Marshall stacks and a huge light show and those days were ending and so we started to scale things down and eventually we actually turned into the Mojo Gurus and went in a more went back to our roots and uh, and played more blues blues oriented rock. Yeah,
0: because I went back and I was listening to some of the Mojo Gurus and, uh, and I'm glad you said rockabilly because I was, you know, You've mentioned a lot of stuff. It's hard to put your finger on all of it, right, Yeah, But I hear, obviously, I hear the blues, but I, I heard some rockabilly. So I'm like, yeah, man, it's a mix of a lot of cool things all in one.
1: Yeah, I'm a, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a rock and roll affectionate. You know, not only am I in a band, but like I'm a huge fan and collector of albums and and uh, kind of a. I don't know, kind of a student of rock and roll, and um, I like all kinds of rock and roll music, as long as it's done good. <laughs> and um, so, I, I you know, it was a chance for me to, to get back and do all that rockabilly, and, and um, there's still a lot of glam elements, and there were some country elements, and I don't know, we just wrapped it all together into the Mojo Gurus.
0: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, with all of us, hey, with uh, we all have a multiple dimensions to us as people. You know what I mean? Some people may want to just remember you as, oh, you know, the guy from Rocks Gang. But well, hey, you know, you like blues, you like rockabilly, you like other things. On my Twitter channel, um, it's called 80s Glam Metal. And and that's what I specialize in. So I'll, I do. I, I'll, I'll post rock Gang clips and all that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, maybe I'll post something heavy like uh, Judas Priest or Manowar. And then people will come back, that's not glam metal. Well, no shit. You know what I mean? I like different kinds of music. That's just the name of the channel. So. Well, you
1: know, when I was a kid, when I fell in love with rock and roll in the first place, the bands that I was listening to, like, if you take a band like the Rolling Stones, for instance... You know, they do rock and roll, they do blues, they do reggae, they do R and B. Um, nobody told bands like the Beatles or the Stones, like, um, oh wow, man, you're you're you're, you know, you're experimenting in too many kinds of uh, too too many genres. Like what? Well, that was the charm of those bands, you know. Yeah. And. Um, I don't know, today things are so like tunnel vision, you know, so many bands are, uh, quite honestly, I find boring because like they're just, all their albums sound exactly the same, all the songs on the album sound basically sound the same, it's like nobody experiments anymore.
0: No, you're right And I think labels Labels like to put things You know, like cookie cutter You know, this is metal This is blues This is rap And a lot of times When any bands try to deviate From what they're known for They get punished by the fans They get punished by the They get punished by everybody it, it, It's not fair
1: Oh yeah when, when I went from rock gang to the Mojo Blues, Lost a lot of the uh, 80s 80s uh, Hair metal Fans, whatever. But see, I never really considered Rock's Gang. I mean, we came out in that time, and I had a shredding guitar player, Wade Hayes, that played, definitely played in that 80s style. But I felt my songwriting, uh, songs like Red Rose and Fastest Gun in Town and Ball and Chain, they're not, that's not like girls, 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 or Cherry Pie or, down boys what you no. no you're right and um and uh you know we were live fast i young know, and, and um whatever but i just i never really associated us with a lot of those bands that came out that we got as, the bands that we got associated with i never felt a particular kinship to um My glam influences, like I said, were, they were like 70s glam, you know? I was into T-Rex, and Bowie, and the Dolls, and the Iggy, and Mata Hoople, and, um, you know, I come from Bumfuck, Florida, and um, we didn't get signed until, like, I think in 88, maybe at the end of eighty seven. And, um, you know, by that time, w- when Rock game was recording their first album, I can remember sitting in, the, we did it at a place in, uh, out in California called The Enterprise. The studio was owned by um, Billy Mummy, who was Will Robinson lost in Lost Space. Oh. <laughs> He's also part of a duo, I can't remember their name right now, but you know that novelty song, uh, Fish
0: Heads? No, I don't think I do.
1: No, fish heads, fish heads, Roly Poly fish heads. <laughs> no, <laughs> i you that. I'll was have to look into that. Too. But I can remember being in the lobby while my guitar player was doing recording guitar solos, and I'd be in the lobby watching TV, watching MTV, when they still had when they played videos back then, and um, and I remember seeing the first Nirvana videos you know nirvana and soundgarden had they had albums out before uh, before our first album came out right so like so like the the writing was already on the wall we got had we been signed a year or two earlier you know if my my band was dirt poor man if we would have had the money to move out to california like a lot of bands and, and had we got signed a year or two earlier could have made you know as it was, our first album sold about a quarter of a million copies. But I think we definitely would have won platinum if we'd been signed just a year earlier, you know? Yeah. And um, so, like, because we got signed at that point, what it might give some people who didn't know us the impression that we were getting on the bandwagon late, in reality... You know, Rocks Gang had been together for years, playing locally before we got signed, and we were like... I mean, Rocks Gang existed here before there was MTV, and people nationally knew Poison or Motley Crue or anything. So, people down here in Florida, are you freaking kidding me? They were... I mean... hey, I love bands like Leonard Skinner, but, I mean... That's what these people, they would come see Rocks Gang in a bar and they would freak, right? They thought we were like freaking transvestite junkies, <laughs> right? And um, these are like, we're, you know, I hate to say redneck, but the, the, these are good old Florida boys. <laughs> and they would come see Rocks Gang in those early days before they, you know, you got to remember, they hadn't been exposed to bands like Motley Crue or Poison yet. And, um, yeah, people used to really freak on us locally. Then when it exploded on MTV, when there was bands like Molly Crew and everything, people were like, wow, you guys were really ahead of your time. When in reality, the the reason I started wearing, you know, eyeliner and, and wild clothes was because of 70s glam bands that I liked, you know? So it was always a weird trip and and a, a bad, bad timing for Rock guys. <laughs> <laughs> so in
0: 1988, you know, you, you put out things you've never done before. And I can tell you, because like I said, I, I have a, a page that's dedicated to this, this genre of music. When I put out a video or if something, anybody does, people go crazy about this album, the videos, everything associated with it. So it has got to feel good, right? All these years later, people still enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, you know, it's my legacy, you know. I, it's, not to sound, I, I mean, if I've made any kind of mark on this world, you know, I left behind albums and videos, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I dreamed about it since I was a little kid. When I was a little boy, and I can remember watching The Monkees on TV, and, um, before I knew I had any kind of musical, uh, ability, songwriting or musical ability, like, I just wanted to live that lifestyle, you know? I wanted to wear cool clothes and, uh, live it like, you know, have a, like a, live with my band in a monkey's headquarters and drive a <laughs> monkey mobile <laughs> and get, and I remember one episode uh specifically where they were in France and all these colonels were chasing Davy Jones all over the Eiffel Tower and when they finally caught him they were like they ripped his shirt off and I was like Right there man I said that's what I'm gonna do
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think do you think that, you know, once you're in the scene I mean, obviously, when you're a kid, it it, it was the same thing with me. I mean, when I watched all the hair bands of the 80s, that's what I wanted to do, you know what I mean? But I think now that I talk to everybody and I know the back end of it, I mean, there's there's so much crazy stuff in the business that's not glamorous, that's not fun, you know what I mean? You had to have experienced some of that.
1: Oh, yeah. First of all, like the rock and roll that I fell in love with, you know, like, it was all wild times. I, I was looking at the golden gods of rock and roll from the 70s, you know, when it was something to be a rock star. And um, I imagined all the backstage, you know, shenanigans and uh, all the things that went on in the tour, on the tour bus and the, at the hotels. and And these days, I, by the time I made it, I got a little taste of that, but really it was changing so fast. And these days, you know, Aerosmith backstage, they're not doing drugs and stuff. They're doing a corporate meet and greet, you know? Right. They're getting pictures taken with freaking fat cats and their families and stuff. And, and like, concerts are now... a everybody sits in an assigned seat, you know? When I first started going to concerts, it was just, every concert was festival seating. Fight your way to the front stage. Yep, yep. You might be able to touch, you might be able to touch Steven Tyler's foot, you know? But these days, and it sucks, not only for the people, not only for the audience, but for the fricking band. Like, bands feed off the energy of the crowd, you know? The better the crowd is, the better night the van's going to have. And when everybody's sitting in an assigned seat and all the best seats up front at, at festivals and stuff are by people who can afford the VIP tickets, not necessarily the most rabid fans, but the freaking yuppies with enough money to buy, you know, sucks. It's completely not rock and roll. And anybody thinks, and yes... When you first like for instance you're a local band you're we're starting to do good we're starting to get national press okay you get a record deal you think you know you're young you're naive you think I made it I got a record deal cuz that's all you strive for when you're a kid okay yeah it's a necessary step but now you go from being the big you know the big fish in a small pond to all of a sudden you're not shit you know if you're a baby band you got a record deal big fucking deal and um and things are just yeah the the struggles that i had with our like we were on virgin records we were virgin records first hard rock signing okay now these days they've had you know a lot of times gone by since then and they've had the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and Iggy Pop and all, all kinds of, you know, huge rock and rollers about Virgin. But we were Virgin's first hard rock signing and they didn't have a freaking clue what to do with us. Okay? They knew they liked us, but they just they hadn't marketed a band like us before. And um it was crazy, man. My A and R guy Larik Weymouth, his uh, sister is Tina Weymouth, the in- bass player in the Talking Heads.
0: Oh, okay, yep.
1: When I presented the songs that would become the second Rocks Gang album, um, he was like, I was so proud. I thought it was so much better than the first album. I thought we'd, m- musically, I knew myself, I had matured, you know? And we were like adding all, I, I had, I was going in a direction I felt more comfortable with. It was less metal and a little more, like, a, like I said, like a blues oriented. When I say blues oriented, I, to me, early Aerosmith is a blues oriented sure. rock yep. band. I mean in that direction, okay? I don't mean full on blues. And, um,. And the freaking guy listened to our songs, and I was like, he's, he's gonna be knocked out, man. And he came back and he said, I think you need to push the envelope. <laughs> and he said, there was a hit song at the time, The Divinals, When I, when I Think of You, I Touch Myself, yeah, remember that song? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was total pop and total not... And he said, you need to just put out something more like the I was like, well, what am I gonna do? Like, we're a baby band. You can't just tell, when you're a baby band, like, you can't just come to the label and start telling everybody, you're wrong. <laughs> this is what you need to do, you know? We made our first videos. No Easy Way Out was our first video. We did on a Hollywood soundstage. Nigel Dick directed it. He, he directed Welcome to the Jungle, and, um, we were one of the first bands to use that uh blue screen. Mm-hmm. And um oh my god the pres the uh Jeff Off from Virgin Records was there and he vice president and he was like giving us all these corny suggestions and I just wanted to say like fucking remove this guy from the set, you know, <laughs> but you can't. No, nope, no. Nope. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, it's just so, so much hassle, man. In the music business, there's so much luck involved. There's so much who you know. And it's all about connections. You know, my, my little brother, my kid brother managed our band from the time he negotiated the Virgin Record deal. The kid was like eight, uh, 18 or 19. And he got us a very attractive record deal, right? And, um, but being from Bumfuck, like, we didn't have the connections, you know? Right. Whereas a band that came out close to the same time as us, say, the Black Crows, you know, their manager was David Lee Roth's fucking, that Pete Angelus guy. He just, he was steering them in their image. He was steering them in their videos. He had all the—can you imagine what the connections he has, being David Lee Roth's manager? Oh yeah. At that time.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah. You know, it makes a world of difference. But you know, whatever. All I could do was, all I could do was write the best songs I could and get out there and have as much fun as I could have. That's what I looked at it.
0: What was it like to work with Bo Hill? He produced this album, right? The for the debut?
1: Bo Hill was a great guy. We we chose Bo see see Virgin had they didn't know what they were doing with us, but they had tons of money and they got us everything we wanted. They spent a lot of money on our videos. They gave us a lot of tour support in the beginning. And they let us pick, you know, they said, Who do you want? To produce your album, and we gave him a list, and Bo Hill was on the top because we had a couple of guys in our band, me included, that were big fans of the band Kicks. Yep. And and Bo had just produced uh, their latest album at the time, and um, you know he worked with Rat and Alice Cooper and. Of course, Winger and Warrant, who we weren't really crazy about but, um, m- musically. But uh, but anyways, Bo came in and he was... Bo was a great guy. He helped us... Uh, he's the only producer I felt that ever had uh, ideas as far as, like, constructive ideas as to structure in a song. Like, he might... Just, it was the only time I ever had a producer that I agreed with when he said you know you need a you need to do the bridge here or whatever you need to do an extra chorus at the end of the song or whatever you know all this stuff made sense and and improved us and um and he was super nice guy super funny super fun to be around it was a, it was my best experience i've worked with uh i worked with jack douglas and the mojo gurus he produced all the aerosmith i mean he's done everybody right he's done aerosmith he's done the new york dolls he's done cheap trick he's done everybody right he did john lennon's last album you know he was working on that album when john lennon was shot oh my God. um I got a lot of respect for Jack as an artist, but as a human being, I did not get along with Jack Douglas. And recording, that was "Shaken in the Barn," was the name of the CD we, that he produced, mm-hmm. and uh, with the Mojo Gurus, and it was a freaking miserable experience. And sometimes you collect and sometimes you don't. You know. Yeah. And um, I've never been super comfortable. To me, being in a rock band is about playing live. And studio is like a necessary evil. You gotta have the album to go out on the road. Of
0: course. You know?
1: But uh, studio environment is not conducive to rock and roll. I mean, we do what we can with our scarves and our incense and some mood lighting. (laughs) The studio is a cold, sterile place where you get no immediate feedback, like energy from the people. You know, from an audience. It's. I just always. I was never. I've never been super comfortable in a studio.
0: So let's talk about the first single because I think this was an amazing first single, and I don't know. Over the years, I just still gravitate to this song as probably my favorite is No Easy Way Out, man. It's just got a cool, eerie little riff kind of in the beginning, and it's just catchy. It just, I don't know, man. I I love that song. Like, that's one that I'll just can't let go of, man. It's just perfect. Thanks. (laughs)
1: Um, No Easy Way Out and Scratch My Back and half the songs on the first album were written by me and a guitar player It's not even on the first album. His name was Eric Carroll, and uh, he died right before we got signed. And um, it was weird circumstances, man. This cat was my best friend. He was like a brother. He's my guitar player. He was my Glimmer twin, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, we lived down here in Florida. Eric had a van, and he was a fisherman he'd go fishing at night. he'd, you know, he'd have drinks from Jack Daniels and do a few lines of Coke, smoke some weed. He'd be out on a bridge, kind of catch a snook, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one night he was out on a, on a bridge with somebody who he owed a lot of money to for Coke. And he, uh, nobody knows what happened. But apparently he, they say he fell off the bridge, right? right. Broke his neck. And we were like, we were poised to be signed. Carl Kennedy, you know, you know the band The Rods?
0: Yes, yep.
1: Okay, Carl Kennedy's the drummer. He's also a producer. He's produced Anthrax, Overkill, a bunch of heavy, early heavy albums. And he was looking for something that was a little more it wasn't so freaking, you know, anthrax, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he heard our demos, and, we, and he was all set to come down here. We eventually recorded a, an album-length demo called Love Them and Leave Them. We later on, we, re, we released it as a CD. And, uh, it's what got us signed to Virgin. But the night before he was come, supposed to come down here to start produc- pre-production, Eric dies. So um, I was freaking heartbroken, man. This guy was like my brother, you know? And it really hit me hard and I was, i didn't, for a while I was like, I didn't know whether I wanted to, I don't know, I just had mixed emotions, you know? I just didn't know what to do. And then I figured out like, look, I'm going to fucking keep going, and I'm going to get signed, and I'm going to get these songs that Eric and I wrote on an album and get them out there for people to hear, and that's the best tribute that I could ever give them, you know? Yeah. And, um, and you know, lucky for me, we did. And uh yeah, so Eric wrote No Easy Way Out with me. He came up with that with that riff you're talking about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah and you know what I, that was it, Great, man. You know what hit me this morning <laughs> is that it. I think it. I think "Twist of Cain" by uh, Danzig borrowed that, or I don't know which came out first. But it hit me the other day. It's like that. They're similar. Similar.
1: There's a dictator song that has a similar riff too. Uh, the name of it leads me right now, but people have said that we copied the dictators, but it's not the same riff. It's it's similar, and I, I'm a Dictators fan. I don't think Eric ever even heard of the dictators, and he came up with the riff. So, and um yeah, I loved that riff when I heard it, and those lyrics just came pouring out of me. And uh, my best songs are always ones that I just sit down and boom they come out. If I gotta work on it too long usually those aren't the best
0: songs.
1: Right. Yeah yeah you're overthinking it. Red Rose on the first album. When he said when I sang, Oh Caroline you know, as a writer I took some poetic license. But his name was Eric Carroll and uh you know, so I just changed the. I wrote it as if I was singing to a girl, Oh Caroline, and um, you know, in the song, the the singer is, is dying, and um, that was my little tribute to Eric. Okay, back to ball and oh, change. actually, girl, wait, let
0: me throw so, in something there because I when I listen to that one. It, it makes me think of those, um, like those tragedy songs that, like, like from the fifties and sixties of, like, the you know the guy, like the 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 Jimmy Dean, you know, the guy goes over the cliff. You know what I'm trying to yeah. say? Like, yeah, and that's that, and that's Rick, funny because I didn't know yeah. that it had anything to do with something like, real. So that's cool. Like,
1: like wreck on the highway. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just in my mind I was picturing kind of a Civil War, antebellum. Oh, here's an interesting side bit. Talking about the backstabbings that go on in rock and roll behind the scenes. Our second, uh, our second video, Scratch My Back, was directed by this English cat named Ralph Dryman, and he directed all the early LA Guns videos. And, um I went, Rock's gang went to England to tour, and, um I was hanging out with Ralph. And we'd already, he'd already come to America to shoot, scratch my back, and now we were over there. And I said, I have this great idea for our next song. The video never got made, but our plans at the time was the next video was gonna be Red Rose. And I said, I wanna be standing on the porch of like a old Southern mansion. And I want rose petals to be raining down on me as I'm singing and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going, what a great visual that would be, right? I already know. Like, I know oh. where this is going. <laughs> he, he dig. I dig it. I dig it, he says. All of, well, our video never got made. Anymore. Ballad of Jane, you yep. know, yep. he makes a video, and there they weren't rose petals, but it's like my idea, man.
0: As soon as you said the rose petals of the mansion, I was like, wait a minute, man. I'm, Ballad of Jane. Ballad of Jane. Ballad
1: of Jane kinda of make my idea so God bless Ralph. Ralph is a good guy <laughs> even if he did all right so let's, see, yeah, does,
0: let's go back does. to the story of ball and chain tell me the ball and chain story
1: so ball and chain
0: um
1: you know that was my attempt like I said there was times when I was just a little uncomfortable like with um uh, like I wanted to be like a have like a Aerosmith type band and uh there was times when i felt like some of this stuff we're doing is just a little a little too heavy like live fast die young or something you know and uh and so and i sat down with that song and i was like you know the lyrics came first with that song and um that was my attempt at writing something you know kind of blues rock and old you know i could feel like a you know i don't know then all of a sudden there was like uncle tom's cabin and shit like that you know but um that was my that was my stab at at doing a like a i don't know it's a southern blues front porch kind of feeling thing you know blending it with rock and roll guitars and stuff you know
0: yeah and that's funny that you and, uh, say that the uh, it's funny you say the um, the lyrics are written before the melody because the melody's so prominent you know what I mean
1: well the melody the melodies are all mine when I say the music I mean okay right from the start how my songwriting personally evolved was first I was just a lyric writer then I started hearing the mel. you know as I was writing the songs I would feel the melody and I would say I didn't know how to communicate this because I didn't, I didn't play guitar, right? And then I started, you know, singing my melodies, like singing the words how I wanted to sing the song. All well, my guitar players are fast studies. All of a sudden, they they lay down rhythm behind it, right? But the, it got to be where when I write a song now, the melody and the lyrics come almost simultaneously. Like as I'm writing the lyrics, I'll have the idea of how pretty much how I want to sing it. Like then I started actually singing rhythm, like I would say, like a song like Nine Rods. I came to those guys and said, you know, I want to go like I would actually sing the guitar part, nah, 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 nah. and they would copy and play it, and I we got as we kept going as i kept going you know my ideas became more a little more sophisticated and they became they became better at reading me we became better at communicating you know with this special freaking language we had and um and that's how our songwriting evolved but the, the but the lyrics and melody of every single rock gang song are mine the um and some of the and and as time went on, more and more of the music to where in the Mojo Gurus, the last Mojo Gurus album we did was called Gone, and I wrote the entire album, words, music. I even had we used strings on one song, and I actually directed the string section and the horn section, and um, I just... Yeah, it's, it's, with me, it was a matter of, um like people talk about building blocks, but for me, it was like getting rid of stumbling blocks. It was like, don't be scared to make a fully, like, you just sing your ideas to these guys. I'm working with really good musicians, and like, they learned a lot, most of them learned how to play by ear. All my guitar players learned how to play by ear anyways. So just sing your ideas to them. Hum them. Whatever you got to do, you know? And, um... Yeah, so... Ball and chain. What, uh...
0: (laughs) Who, who, uh... So you've got a pretty distinct voice. A lot different than a lot of the guys that were out at that time. Um, Who do you think... How did you get there? Who were some of your influences, you think? Well, i
1: I think that the reason that I, I've i been told this over and over, almost everybody who interviews me says what you just said, okay? And I think what I can attribute that to is the fact that I never tried to sound like anybody else. I had influences. My influences were more like lyrically and... Uh, image-wise, but as far as singing, even when I was starting out and singing cover songs, I didn't try and sing the song like the original artist. I wanted to sing it like me, you know? Like, what is the sense? To me, being in a band is all about expressing your individuality, right? Right. Okay, you're not expressing your individuality if you're trying to imitate Ronnie dio or whoever you know <laughs> if you're trying to sound exactly like somebody who you admire i think that's a really bad idea and i would tell any singer coming up try and be yourself and from the right from the start try and develop your own style you know you want to sound like yourself you don't want you know this guy doesn't mean uh Rob Halford, whatever, but he isn't Rob Halford and he doesn't do it as good as Rob, you know what I mean? Yeah. Be yourself. You wanna, it's all about expressing yourself, expressing your individuality. Why would you want to sound like somebody else? So I never really tried. Um, There's maybe some extreme, some rare examples when like I was going for a certain feel uh, I'm a huge Mark Bowen fan, and I do have a couple songs in the Mojo Cruise where we we actually sat down and listened to some T-Rex guitar sounds and stuff, and, and I will admit that th- there are I, a couple of songs where I tried to get kind of a breathy Mark Bowen kind of vocal, but, you know... it it still sounds like heaven steel no matter how hard i try i don't know i'm making it sound like it's this you know great wise thing but like i don't know i'm just a rock and roll shouter dude i've never thought that i particularly had a great voice a lot of my favorite singers don't you know that's not what rock and roll is about i'm not i'm not trying to knock anybody of course if you have a great voice more power to you you know but like i listened to people like you know Mick Jagger and Jim Morrison and Iggy and like Lou Reed like they didn't have great voices
0: no, you no know? no i'm with you 100% i'm with you cuz i and when i there's all like you said you could say the Jeff Tates the Rob Halford's the the Ronnie James Dio you know you could say that wow that guy's technically got a great voice but I probably always liked the people who maybe weren't the greatest, but just had more character. You know, just had were not that they, those guys didn't have character, but just had just were interesting, just sounded cool. They didn't have to be exactly. It's that.
1: character. You hit that's the perfect. You hit the nail right on the head. When I was a kid, and I first heard Alice Cooper, I loved that original Alice Cooper band. Oh, yeah. um, Alice is definitely one of my Mojo gurus. Yeah, me too. I met him. I met him and told him so, and um, and had the opportunity to give him a Mojo Guru's album where it says right in the liner notes, who was dedicated to all our, we had listed several of our influences, and Alice was in there, and Alice was, Alice was the nicest guy, man. And um, I tell you, a lot of times when you meet your, when you meet your heroes, you meet your idols, sometimes you could be really be disappointed you yeah. know? <laughs> but Alice did not disappoint you know he wasn't fucking Alice Cooper you know what I mean yeah he wasn't some ghoul cool necrophiliac <laughs> cool he was a sweet fucking guy like he was a very nice guy he was super nice to me and my old lady and I had nothing but nice things to say about him
0: yeah, that's awesome. What year do you guys do um, the follow-up?
1: I don't know. It took a few years because what happened? So Virgin was going to put us on a uh, subsidiary label. I think it was called Charisma or something. And uh, we said, "Fuck this, man!" They didn't give. It, they didn't know what they're doing. We're on the main label now. They're putting us on a subsidiary our new our lawyer negotiated a release from virgin records and we got out not owing them a penny right and on top of that they had already paid for us to go demo out all our songs for the next album and we walked away with those tapes too and so we had the second album pretty much in the can a lot of people don't know this but in the second album, there's already—if you look at the picture—there's uh, lineup changes. Right. But those lineup changes didn't happen. Those songs were all recorded by the original band. The same lineup that's on "Things You Never Done Before" recorded "The Voodoo You Love." When Stacy Blades joined the band, even though his picture is on the album, he didn't play a lick on that album. Well, I I take that back. We added two songs to the album that he he does play on. But the meat of the album was already recorded and it wasn't him. (laughs) It wasn't Tommy Weeder on drums and it wasn't Dorian Graham bass. It was all my original guys from Things You've Never Done Before. But this is another interesting thing. I told you about my guitar player buddy from the original Rocks Gang that died. Well, the lineup that's on Things You Never Done Before is probably the best-known lineup because videos and that album sold the best. And um, what people also don't realize is, I told you, Rock existed for years before that album, and there's not a single guy on Things You Never Done Before, with the exception of Yours Truly, that was in the original Rock it was a whole other band and slowly one by one. And then when Eric died, that was the last when well, we got Wade Days in the band. And um that kid whoo, Rock came brother it was I didn't you know, I I thought I was gonna for the I was a kid from Florida that was realizing my life's dream Right. Yeah. I got an album out. The very first night we went, we were in Los Angeles. Virgin puts us up in this condo, and it was the second night, the second night we were there because we were on Virgin. Keith Richards was releasing his first solo album, Talk Is Cheap, and like we had to go to his album release party at the uh, whiskey and I'm this I'm this kid from you know bumfuck and I'm rubbing elbows with all every every LA rock star was there right and um, I was kind of doing my best to look cool and like unimpressed you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I you know I was like holy shit and um, now now if, now it would, Keith Richards of course would impress me <laughs> anytime the guy's like the Pope of rock and roll, but, but, um, but none of those guys would even, these days, they wouldn't even faze me, you know? Right, right. Now I know most of them are a bunch of jerk <laughs> 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 And, you know, and I feel like, I feel like musically I am their peer, you know, like, but then I didn't even have my first album on, and I was like, Wow there's all the guys in the act. there's the guys in Vastor Pussycat, there's Axel Rose, you know what. I went in the men's room and uh, I'm at the stall. And uh, you know, a guy, when you're at the stall, you keep eyes, yeah. <laughs> eyes forward, <you> yeah. <laughs> But out of my peripheral vision, I could see, it seemed like a kid was taking a piss next to me, Right. <laughs> You see "And I, as I backed away from the stall, it wasn't a little kid. It was Ronnie
0: James Dio. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been mind blowing." One. So basically, with that, um, I mean, music trends had changed. So I mean, it had to be tough at that point.
1: Yeah, and plus, we had recorded that, you know, right on the heels of things you know you'd never done before, and then we get re- we make a split with Virgin and immediately um Columbia I think came stepped in and they were going to release our second album and then in the music business man you could have be this close and then all of a sudden the people you're dealing with are gone you know Mm -hmm. the next day and there was some situation like that and so we were like fuck and um but we had this like an album, and we eventually we just re- did a distribution deal with Paris Records and uh, put it out you know ourselves basically on Paris. and um, well, with Tom Mathers help with the distribution, you know but um, so yeah, not only were musical not only was were t- trends changing or had changed. But this the album really had been recorded two and a half years, almost three years before it actually got released. There was a long time of us searching for another label and this and that and the other thing, and then there was member change. So, so in that time, you know, guys who were used to being on a per diem in Rocks Gang, uh, you know, it led to splits, and uh, it led lent, it lent to the first big shakeup in our lineup change. I, I had guys in my band who, it was like they watched uh, too many, uh, you know, it's like they watched t- t- too many rock and roll movies. Like, they they saw Jimmy Page or Keith Richards or whoever throwing TVs out the hotel windows, and, like, you know, times had changed <laughs> since then like i was saying earlier the rock and roll that i fell in love with as a kid it's not the same anymore it's, it's not as fun it's not it's it's just not the same animal man and um it's not the same party as it used to be but those you don't you couldn't tell those guys that and they were throwing shit out the window and they were smashing them tearing up hotel rooms and they were tearing up clubs and they were holy freaking terror, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you're young, I don't know. A lot of times I was right in there with them, but sometimes it was just like, you know, you got to pay the bills the next day.
0: You know? Right. Yeah. There's a budget, right?
1: And <laughs> <laughs> they. I'm surprised they never hurt somebody or killed. I remember one night they threw a big metal, like a cot, a fold-out cot. We were staying at some hotel, and uh, to be frugal, one of the crew members was going to sleep in their room on a cot. And they, they were not hip to the idea, and they took the cot, and they went out on the balcony. It was up on, on a, it wasn't on ground level. And there was a parking lot below, and they just tossed the freaking cot. I mean, somebody would have been down there. <laughs> Crazy stuff. You said one time, uh, uh, we had a like the bridesmaids, like a wedding. I don't know what a, what a girls call. Oh, bachelorette party, I guess. Yeah. And um, and I we had uh, we had a like. Angry husband, <laughs> or angry groom-to-be. Trying <laughs> 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 kind to of look in all our rooms and shit. We're, life was an adventure with those guys. when You never knew what was going to happen or who was going to... We, we would get into fist fights among ourselves. There was definitely a lot of heavy drinking and a lot of heavy... In those days, you know... Cocaine was, you know, the drug of choice, and uh, uh, you know, too much coke. When you mix coke and Jack Daniels and ignorance, dangerous combination. <laughs> it's a combination. dangerous combination. You know? An ego, got some ego, in there. and um, it meant for some harrowing times. <laughs> So, anyway we make uh, the booty you love and it's three years behind the time in a in a musical climate change, has already changed and you know really that was the beginning of the end we put out a couple more rock gang albums uh one called like i said mojo gurus and there was drinking tnt and smoking dynamite but um you know, by that time, it was like, what are we going to do? It was like, we had this big, you know, 80s production, and the clubs we were playing, you know, we weren't playing in theaters anymore. We were playing in clubs. The clubs were freaking getting smaller. The interest in our kind of music was dying out. Uh, we refused to freaking band, <laughs> And, um... A lot of my friends, a lot of bands in those days that were in that 80s scene all of a sudden started wearing Doc Martens and uh, and like, you know, cut long shorts and Doc Martens, you know, and T-shirts. And uh, we were fucked, uh, glam, you know, grunge socks, glam wheels. We were still full, full makeup, you know. And um, finally it just got to be like I said, the baggage of being rock gang, it was too much. So that was when we fi- finally we, after that party where we played as the Mojo Grooves, we we had so much fun doing that that we decided, you know what, maybe it's time to make a change. We weren't we weren't ready to call it quits. I certainly wasn't. I knew I had a lot more songs in me, and. Um, I always wanted to go in a more bluesy direction, and so that was my chance.
0: So now, do you get um, offers ever to to regroup as Rock's Gang or any festival dates? Does anybody all coaching? the time?
1: Yeah. Uh, not only do they offer to, not only do they make us offers to reunite. I've had at one t- I've had a time with other. I don't know if I should really say their names. I don't. Want them embarrass them, but I've had bands that you would know from the 80s get in contact with me and say, Kevin, our agent has a whole tour plan, we'll, we'll play as Rocks Gang, we'll be the band, you don't even have to come to rehearsals, just show up and you know we'll do a tour as Rocks Gang. And um, I don't want to, uh, this is the way I look at it. I grew up idolizing guys like Steven Tyler, right? Alice Cooper. A lot of these guys. It's it's very hard to age gracefully in rock and roll, especially as a singer. Guitar player's got that whole gypsy, gunslinger, pirate look going it looks good into there you know keith looked great till he was you know till just recently joe perry still looks way joe perry looks way cooler than steve you know i look at Stephen connor now and i'm like dude it's 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 great that you can still move out like that and it's great that you still are fit enough to wear clothes like that but but you're 70 something you don't shouldn't be wearing clothes like that. And your songs, their songs are still aimed at prepubescent girls. And to me, I'm not saying, look, Aerosmith fans, we'll party who the fuck am I to say anything? I'm just saying for me, personally, it's creepy. (laughs) 70 year old grandpa is singing songs to teenage girls. At least the Stones and 80s fans, this is something you touched on earlier, they're like unforgiving, man, and they are like stuck. They want me to be Kevin Steele of Rockstone, right? A lot of them. And, um, you know, that was a different, I was a different person. I was in my mid to late 20s when I started with the first album, not when I started, but by the time I got an album out, and um and i was singing songs like you know scratch my back and too cool for school and i need your sex and, and like i don't want i'm a middle-aged man now <laughs> you know? right yeah i know i would saying. feel ridiculous i would feel ridiculous dressing up like i used to dress up i would feel ridiculous singing a song like i need your sex or or too cool for school. <laughs> too cool for school, dude. I've been <laughs> out
0: of school for a school, while. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
1: and like, this, this, I look around at my peers, a lot of guys from the 80s, and they're still fucking, you know, Stephen Piercy or somebody is still trying to be 80s Stephen Piercy, you know? And some of these guys that are still... They're still doing that 80s thing. And to me, it's just, I'm sorry. Just, to me personally, I just find it kind of sad, you know? And uh, the most glam motherfuckers in the world. Who's more glam than David Bowie? Okay, David Bowie matured. Right. He, he didn't stage Ziggy Stardust, you know? Ian Hunter from Mata Hoople is still playing today. But he doesn't wear platform boots and velvet suits. Mick Jagger doesn't wear sequin jumpsuits. You know? It's like age appropriate, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and I know there's a lot of people who disagree with me and they still love to see it. And there's, the thing is, it's nostalgia, man. Music is in, in your brain. Music is hooked directly to nostalgia like when you hear a song, it takes you right back to the day. Man, those were the fucking days when you hear that certain song. And people love to be brought back to those days. But as an artist, and I understand that, you know, and if you're a band and, you, and, and you're happy and satisfied with just uh, satisfying people's sense of nostalgia and whatever, that's your gig, but it's not mine. And, uh, you know, I got to I, I got to do what makes me happy. If I'm not happy, I would not be happy. If I was singing rock-stang songs night after night at this age, I would be a miserable prick. And uh, that defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. You know?
0: I understand. I'm, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, life's too short.
1: So, what do you do?
0: Yeah. so I take it it's yeah, not happening look,
1: <laughs> and you can still look good man I'm not saying you can't look good but you can't but like you know god when you're in your freaking 60s and 70s step wearing eyeliner and skin tight pants it's disgusting <laughs> you
0: know? well man hey we I think we ended on a good note uh, you answered all my questions I really appreciate your time tonight
1: Alright ahead, man. I had a good time here, good dude.
0: Wow, Kevin, man. He is a riot. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Remember, you got to subscribe. Lots more interviews coming. Rock on.